John 20, that's where we are. We're continuing in this uh, study or this idea of adding up the results of the resurrection. Adding up the results of the resurrection. I'd said to you before that every Sunday we come to church, we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we worship. It's called the Lord's Day. And sometimes after Easter, it's just easy to kind of go into other things and kind of forget about it. But I think there's some issues here in John 20, or 19 and 20 and 21 that we want to look at. So we're doing some kind of adding up. I saw a statement this week uh, uh, by Lance Ward that I thought was helpful in this area. In John 19, when Jesus said, it is finished, Lance made this statement. He said, when Jesus said, it is finished, things just actually began, right? When Jesus said, it's finished, really, in lots of ways, things just actually began or started. And so we want to sort of look at that as this kind of adding up, adding up the results of the resurrection, uh, 38 years ago, almost, Becky and I got married. I, I said this the other day, we've been married so long that if Becky would have killed me the first time she thought about it, she'd just now be getting out of jail. So <laughs> that's long, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the truth. You know, 38 years, good night. And I thought about that this week, or as I was working on this lesson, I got to thinking about that that decision was certainly a big decision for her and me, but uh, what I don't think I really always realized after we got married was kind of adding up all the results of that. You know, I remember one day it struck me deeply. I was driving home down Winfern uh, Road there in, in Houston, and all of a sudden I thought, you know, this girl has married me which shocked me to begin with. But I got to thinking, uh, when I started adding this all up, I thought, you know what? She is trusting her well-being to me. I thought, wow. I don't think I thought of that when we were getting married. She's, she's, she's expecting me to love her and honor her. And I, I thought, you know, I'm trying to add up these ideas that come with the wedding. Because I tell you, you know, students will sometimes come to me and say, we'd like to talk to you about our wedding. And I say, I know, and I want to talk to you about a marriage. Because... The wedding ceremony certainly is important, but there's a lot of stuff that adds up after that, isn't there? I, I thought she, she trusts me to love her and honor her. She trusts her well-being to me. Her dad never believed that was right, but, you know, ever. <laughs> she trusted me uh, to, to do the best for her, to, to help her find family and friends there in Houston. I just started adding all that up one day. I, it, it shocked me that she did this. I thought, you know, I'd, I had pledged to buy her the best yard equipment I could, I'm a man of my word. I'm a gentleman, right? So this idea of, of adding up and, and, and understanding. So I want to walk us real quick in John 20, where we were, and here they are. They're on your alley. Really adding is a consolation in the midst of deep grief. That was Mary. We talked about that. I, I would ask you to go back if you want to listen to the recording on the night, the, this idea about the orphan spirit. The orphan spirit, it's really sort of kind of gotten a hold of my heart and mind. That, that, that's what we're adding up. Another thing to add up is confidence in the midst of fear. That when Jesus meets these guys, he, he says, peace be with you. And we, we discuss that. In addition to that, there's also this where, um, this is not going to work, is it? Of course not. I told you when the devil fell, you know where he fell, right? into electronics. That's where he lives. Um, yeah. Here we go. A commissioning for the future. 
We're going to pick this up where we ended last week, a commissioning for the future in John 20. When Jesus here in John 20 comes to these men, they're behind closed doors, and he says in verse 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And so they are commissioned. Think, think about it here for a second, that the result of the resurrection was that Jesus in his resurrected state comes to these and says, I'm going to send you like the Father sent me. And we talked about that last week. Where I really want to kind of step back in here is this particular idea next on strengthening. Strengthening. I ended last week on this one. It says, and Jesus said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's verse 21. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive, or the, the word there can actually mean take. Take, receive, take the Holy Spirit. Um, the, one of the results here we're going to see, as we said last week, is on Pentecost on January the, or uh, June the 4th. We're going to discuss this in more detail. But when I went home, I, I did some more reflecting, and I didn't say a couple of things I wanted to say, and I'll say them as quickly as I can. In this act here, when it says, and Jesus did what? He breathed on them. Notice there in verse 22. I don't know if your Bible said, does it say that breathed on them? That's the, that's the, the Greek term here to breathe on them. To me, it's fascinating. Here is Jesus commissioning these guys who, let, let's say it this way, in my mind, they failed. And in my thinking, they're deflated. I want you to think of that imagery. They failed. They've blown it. They're afraid. If at least emotionally and spiritually they're deflated. Is it interesting that Jesus uses this, or, or John tells us, John uses this word that Jesus breathed on them. Now follow the imagery with me, if you will, to where he is now inflating. From deflated to inflate. Now, why I say that is because this word here, he breathed on them, is the term that is used to translate Genesis 2-7. Remember that in the creation account? How did human beings come to life? He formed them. Remember, he formed them, and then he what? He breathed on them the breath of life. He breathed into them. This is the same term. The same term, the Greek term translating the Hebrew term. And that at some sense, what Jesus is doing in this sense, he is bringing them to life. Now, the idea of the spirit here, the idea of the spirit where Jesus refers, uh, or John refers to this, Jesus doesn't come to demand something of them. Think about this. Jesus doesn't come to demand something of them. He comes, if you will, to offer them something. Or really, someone Think about it. These guys are deflated. They've failed. They've blown it. And Jesus comes and says, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Not a demand, but an offer. To me, it's fascinating here that Jesus does this. And in this experience here, if you will, of giving them or breathing on them the Holy Spirit, they now have the breath of life. And again, that's what brought human beings into being in Genesis chapter 2. Remember, everything in the old or in the creation account, how did everything come into being in the creation account? He what? Spoke it. Let there be, you know, let there be trees, let there be plants. 
Human beings are the only thing on the planet that the Greek word that is used there says he, or Hebrew, he formed them and then he breathed into them the breath of life. This is the same idea. I think John's doing something here. I think John is showing in this event, again, the nature, the experience, the reality of Christian existence or the Christian life. It's lived in the breath and the life of God. It, it's, it's the breath of God. Numa is the Hebrew word. Same word for wind, spirit, breath. And I, I just thought last week, I, I want to slow down here for a bit. I just know that if we think the Christian life is lived in our own energy, in our own strength, in our own effort, the best way I can explain it is we just get out of breath, don't we? You ever feel that way? Just out of breath. I mean, I mean, it's the idea that I've got to live it in my own strength and my own power and my own ability. Jesus does something here incredibly important when he says, receive, take the Holy Spirit. That, that's that fascinating reality that Jesus is in one sense really saying, I'm your breath. I'm what you breathe. I was thinking about this even this morning. Uh, the things that we went to Colorado last summer for a couple of days and we had driven there and as soon as we got there, I jumped out of the car and I'm running up this ramp with our luggage. I thought I was in better shape than that. <laughs> you know, something I do all the time, breathe, suddenly became a challenge. I'm serious. I went, oh no, I'm going to die right here. You know, I, I always think of the greatest, the nicest things, you know. And, and, and I remember thinking, what happened? Well, I got extended. I, my, my, my body wasn't used to this. I, I was overtaxing it. And all of a sudden, I mean, breathing became a challenge. I thought, well, this must be what people feel like when they're having trouble, you know. Think about it. Do you get out of breath? Do I get out of breath in life? Because I'm trying to do it on my own. Do, do, do I, do, or do I learn to breathe? Breathe in, breathe out the spirit. You know, I, I've told you guys this before, but when I get ready to teach, I get really nervous. I know it doesn't seem like it. I just talk. <laughs> but over the years, I've had to learn how to breathe. Because spiritually, you can hyperventilate. Right? You get to breathing too much, too fast. It's all on you. It's all your part. You can hyperventilate spiritually. Jesus is the one who breathes into us. We don't create our own breath. Jesus is the one who breathes into us and says, now take it. Have you learned that? I don't have seven steps on this or four easy plans. But the idea that the breath to live the Christian life, the breath, the spirit, the wind, if you will, to live the Christian life is that Jesus breathes it into us. Now, a friend of mine who's a doctor, we were talking about this one time. 
because I don't like, I don't like the idea of depending on somebody else. Anybody with me? <laughs> I don't like that idea. <clears throat> it's called trust. It's dependence. I, <clears throat> I don't like that. And, <clears throat> and I have a picture in my mind of this that, <clears throat> you know, when somebody gets injured <clears throat> or have a problem, sometimes they put people on a ventilator. You ever seen this? Put people on a ventilator. And one of the things <clears throat> that happens, according to my doctor buddy, is that generally they have to sedate people once they put them on the ventilator. You know why? They fight it. What, what do you mean? They decide they're going to breathe on their own routine. And often doctors have to completely sedate a person so that they will let the ventilator do the work. Right? Bucking, it's what they call bucking the vent. <laughs> you know, doing that kind of stuff. Instead of relaxing and resting and saying, you know what, this ventilator's got the ability to do this for me. What I have to do is rest and rely. I've used this phrase a lot of times, but it's still true that where we learn to walk in the spirit, where we learn to breathe in the spirit is generally only when we come to the end of our resources. We're not dependent by nature, right? Let me, do, I'll show you, I told my dad, I can do it myself. Did you ever say that? I can do it myself. Here it is again, <clears throat> it just reminds you, it's just this, it's that it's your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God to work in your life. It's your inadequacy that creates your capacity for God to work in you. And that's bucking the vent. Because I don't like to get inadequate. I don't like to say I can't. I want to say I can just give me more time, right? But it's our inadequacy that creates the capacity for us to allow the spirit to work in our life. I'm going longer than I planned, but I, I just want to plant this seed in your mind where Jesus said, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you last week, and I mean this, <clears throat> the gospel, in my judgment, you know, people always talk, what's the gospel? Can I tell you real quick again? The gospel comes right out of John chapter one. And in my opinion, <clears throat> a lot of times we've only got half the gospel. Part of the gospel is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is certainly part of the gospel, isn't it? But it is not the gospel. It's just part of it. If you keep reading in John 1, you'll read these words where John said, and this is he of whom I spoke. He is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit or fire. See, those are both the full understanding of the gospel. Not just the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. Oh, well, that's wonderful, isn't it? This is also the one that baptizes you, that places and gives us the Holy Spirit for living. And for lots of years, I think I only understood one half of the gospel. That's all I knew. That Jesus just came to forgive me, and I was very thankful for that, and, and lived in that. But didn't really stop to say, wait a minute, John didn't stop there. He said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and this is he of whom I spoke of who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit or fire. 
It's all the same thing. The gospel. Now, I know, and we've discussed this before, and a lot of us are afraid of the Holy Spirit. I, I know we get nervous because we watch Christian television. <laughs> right? Wow. Some of that stuff. You just go, whoo, I don't want to get in that, right? I understand that. I get that. I get that. But the gospel its fullness is understood as Lamb of God and baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So the question for us is this. Are you breathing on your own? Are you allowing the Spirit to be your breath? Are you breathing on your own? <clears throat> or are you allowing the Spirit to be your breath? And you say, well, Cliff, how to do that? Oh, that, that's simple. Yeah, Right. Ken and I, Ken Smith and I, we talked about this on several occasions. That what, what I have to, what I have to do is this: when I feel the tension start building up in me, and feel the pressure that I've got to make it happen, here's what I have to do: pause, pause. Listen, if you knew all the, I told people, if you knew everything I thought of while I'm teaching, you'd think this guy's nuts because I don't say everything I think. Aren't you glad? <laughs> But I know so also, I'm a, I kind of self-monitor enough that I know that when Cliff starts trying to breathe on his own, when Cliff thinks he can be clever enough or cute enough or smart enough or wise enough, I know when that's happening. And what I have to do? Pause. Rebreathe. Breathe in, Cliff. Breathe in. This is not you and your power and your ability. You have to pause. Turn it down. Slow down. Listen. Depend. So I want to ask you, maybe if you would think about what if this week, the strengthening, the, the breath that we need for this week. Would you, would you do a couple of things maybe? And if you've got an idea, I told you, let, let, let's talk about these applications. Would you perhaps this week, when you go through your day, as you and I, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this, that when you sense the pressure and the stress and the strain on you, that you pause and you do this, just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. Just pause. And say, by taking that deep breath in, I'm, I'm receiving in the spirit that Jesus breathed out on his disciples. Does that make sense? Just pause. Just, just turn it down on the inside. Quit trying to control it. Quit trying to make it happen. Just say, you know what? I've got to breathe here. And I'm going to breathe in deeply. And trust and rely on the Holy Spirit to be my breath. The other thing is, you may be this week bucking the vent. You know you should pause, but you won't. <laughs> you know you should rely, but you won't. And you're bucking the vent, okay? Be willing to admit that. Just be willing to say, you know what? I, I realize it, this idea of pausing, this idea of breathing in to me is so foreign to everything about me. I, it just doesn't make sense. But be willing to say to God, use this imagery. God, I know I'm bucking the vent right now. 
I'm trying to do this on my own. Second thing. Third thing, I mean. Look here, securing. This is the one I wanted to get to. Oh, Mary Jane. <laughs> We've got a testimony coming here someday. Here it is. And then Jesus said this. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. This is one of those verses that uh, people would say, and that's what Jesus said, next, <laughs> right? So I told you I'm not going to be a coward. <clears throat> this idea, <clears throat> you know, I, I was thinking about this this week where it says here, Jesus says to them, now there's some question here about the connection, that only as people are filled with the Holy Spirit are they able to practice this. Now there's some question about that. I'm, I'm not convinced that's the, that's the, the point. Some ideas that, that when Jesus breathed on the, those uh, disciples, the Holy Spirit, that when they're living in the Spirit, then they can make those distinctions and adjudications. I'm not sure about that. I, I'm going to try to work through this. But it did remind me that in uh, the early church and, in, 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 and many years ago, uh, there's a thing called the Apostles' Creed. Anybody go to a church that uh, cited the Apostles' Creed on any regularity? Yeah. You know, said the Apostles' Creed. You know, I, I've got, you know, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And it, it, it does a lot, but it says toward the end, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sin. Now, interesting, in that, in that confession, in that ecumenical confession, there is the idea of the forgiveness of sin. That I believe as a follower of Jesus, I'm confessing, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. So let's look at a couple of terms here. When Jesus said, if you forgive any sin, the Greek word for forgive is aphiomi or aphiomi, and it really comes out of the world of archery. The best word picture for it is this. If you'll remember this now, that to sin, hamartia, is to miss the mark. That's the, it's an archery term. That when you, if one sins, they've missed the mark. That's the word in there. If you forgive the sins, they're forgiven if you retain them. But to forgive is another archery term. It means to let go of the arrow, to let go of it. Not a great, great picture that to forgive is to let go. Okay? So what does this mean? What, what does this mean? If you forgive people, they're forgiven. And if you, if you retain it, they're retained. I want, I want to tell you a story here first, and I want to work to this. You know, a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday that there was a, a terrible a bombing in, uh, right out of Alexandria, Egypt. Um, and uh, several people were killed. Coptic Christians were killed. There's a, a guy, and I may be messing his name up, but his name is Amir Adib. He's a popular television uh, person in, in Egypt. And uh, he had sent one of his colleagues to interview the widow of Nassim Farin, who was the guard who saw this guy coming in to St. Mark's Cathedral and grabbed him to stop him. And when he did, he, the guy blew himself up and killed Nassim and about, I think, 20 other people, something like that. And it's a real tragedy. They interview, or, or uh, Amir Abid has one of his colleagues uh, interview uh, the widow of Nassim Farim. And her husband, who saved all those people, she begins to say, I forgive you. I forgive you 
for killing my husband. We, as followers of Jesus, forgive you for killing my husband. His wife in the interview continues to say, we forgive him who, who did this. We love you. We mean this. Now, what happened was Amir, not a, not a Christian. Uh, you can see this on YouTube. I, didn't, I, I'm, I'm, I can't get PowerPoint slides to work. I don't even dare use YouTube in here, okay? So you're going to have to go find it. Yeah, that's like way out there. After the interview is over, this Egyptian Muslim uh, host or you know uh, anchor sits there for 12 seconds. Do you know what that's like on television? And he can't compose himself. Here's what he said. These Coptic Christians are made of steel. He goes on. These Christians are made of some different, and this is a quote, these Christians are made of some different substance to forgive. He said this, how great is this forgiveness you have? His voice cracks. If it had been my father, I could never say this. But this is their faith and religious conviction. It is a staggering interview. If you have time, you ought to go look at it. But this idea, believing in the forgiveness of sin. Coptic Christians have practiced this for centuries. They've been a minority in Egypt and in that area and have been constant in their, or being constantly persecuted. Now, here's why I say that this, tell this story. Because this is the nub of this passage. Can she forgive them? Think about it. I, I said to Becky about this. I said, she can forgive them insofar as she's concerned. L listen, forgiving other people is us taking our hand off their neck and quit trying to choke them to death. When we forgive, when we forgive, we're taking our hands off their throat and saying, I'm not going to try to choke you to death. But the reality is she can forgive them. But it seems to me, one of the things the scripture teaches, only God can forgive, right? Only God can forgive. We can, we can forgive others from us. But to say those people are forgiven is another issue here. So when we say this, so when Jesus said the sins of those you forgive, they're forgiven. Now I want you to just, I got to work through this grammatically. If you forgive the sins of any, that word there, any, is plural. <clears throat> it suggests not individuals, but if you will, classes or groups. If you forgive any, they're forgiven. It's a plural, plural pronoun here. It's the Greek word timon. And so if you forgive the sins of any, like a group or a class of people, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any group or class or like that, they're retained and held. The word forgive here means they're forgiven now and into the future. 
the retaining is they're retained now and into the future. So this is a significant and serious matter that Jesus is saying, is he in effect giving authority and power over people? I would suggest to you that Jesus is certainly communicating something here that we need to understand. I would say it this way. Jesus is saying in this class of people, any of those that you forgive, plural, they're forgiven. Any of those you retain, it's held. Can I suggest to you from the biblical record, here's what Jesus is referring to. There, the sin is forgiven for those who confess and retained for those who continue to cover. We'll try to work through this. The sins of people are mine or yours. They're, they're forgiven if they're confessed. Or I'll explain this in a second. Or they're retained if people continue, if you will, to cover them. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My students will, will talk about this because what does the word confess mean? You know, they think it means cry or promise I won't do it again. Have you heard this? The Greek word confess simply means this, to agree with God. It means to quit arguing with them about it. It means to say it literally, homo logia, homo, same, logia, the same word. It means to say the same thing. And so the Bible does seem to suggest that forgiveness is for those who confess, right? Remember, some of y'all are old enough to remember this. I, I remember this is not easy. You know, to, to say the same thing. Like I would say to God, well, you know, I was just exaggerating a little bit for evangelistic purposes. That's what preachers do. Because they would say, you know, the other day I was thinking, it was probably nine years ago, <laughs> right? When you confess, you say, no, I'm going to call it what it was. It, it was lying. Right? I'm going to say the same thing. I'm not going to keep arguing with you about it. So, so confess means to say the same thing here. It doesn't mean to cry. doesn't mean to promise you won't do it again. doesn't mean to feel bad. It means simply just to come to the point of saying, I agree. I'm going to call it what you call it. On happy days, long, this is a terrible illustration. On happy days, long, long time ago, when Fonzie was trying to say, I'm so, uh, uh. remember this? Remember this one? Y'all are old like us. We, listen, how many of you saw it when it was original? Not on Nickelodeon. I saw it when it was original. Saw it when it was original. That's right. When he was going, I'm so, so, so. Couldn't say it, right? I'm so, he couldn't do it, right? Couldn't bring himself to agree and say the same thing and say, I did this. I'm, I'm sorry. We do the same thing. I've wondered about that. Why is it that we find it so hard to confess to call it what it is. Instead of arguing with God or arguing with God, I'll tell you one thing I think it is. I think some of us have been treated so poorly when we did confess or we did admit. We're not stupid. You, you, you confess that you've done something wrong and people climb your frame. What you did, what? How in the world can you call yourself... Anybody had that happen then besides me? 
Y'all are lying. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we, we, just, we just get chewed up. Some people don't confess because of that, guys. They just don't want to pay the price that other people are going to put on them. Well, that other, yeah. So it's not only the fact of that I've been treated so poorly, as you're saying, Philip, it can be ego. But you know what? A weak ego or ego that looks strong is often really weak. I can't withstand the pain of not continuing to carry on this kind of mentality or this, this uh, uh, okay, here, let, let me, let me uh, fin- work this out. I'll keep going. Sin is forgiven for those who confess, but retained for those who continue to cover it. Second, sin is forgiven for those who repent and retain for those who rebel. Sin is, con- is, is forgiven for those who repent. Now, I don't have time. On my Friday morning Bible study, we've been working through this for weeks. But, but I want to suggest to you what John Wesley said that repentance was. Repentance is a changing of the mind. It's what the Greek word literally means. When I, when I repent, again, we think it means go to the altar, means cry, means promise. Repent means my mind changes. And I have a different view here. Instead of looking at this behavior as okay, I look at, okay, my mind's changed about that. that. That my understanding of this has now changed. And Wesley said it this way, that repentance is really when I come to an awareness of my true self-knowledge. That what I did here was not right. That what I did, I should not do. It, it isn't God beating the living daylights out of you. It's God bringing you to an awareness. I said to you back in John 14, or 16, I think this word is translated a bit incorrectly when it says the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Anybody heard that when you're growing up? Yeah, I'm convinced, and you can go look at the work, you can go look at the word and run it down. I'm convinced that the word means this. He will convince you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You can be convicted something's wrong, but you're not convinced. That's why I continue to do it. That the Holy Spirit convinces someone, this is not right. Okay, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I'm not going to do it anymore. You can just convict people and make them feel bad and make them feel shamed and pushed down. Or you can convince them, and that's what I believe the Spirit is trying to do, to say this is inappropriate for you. Now, I, I know I've probably dug up a couple of things here, but let me give you two examples and we'll We'll finish this. I'm looking here on a couple of, uh, of uh, comments. This verse has been really misused. That this verse has been the idea that there are people who can say, I have the authority and the right to not forgive you. Maybe a priest or a pastor or a person who thinks they have great authority. And I want to suggest to you, Jesus is not setting up some new hierarchy like the Pharisees or like the religious people of his day. He's not saying, look, you can retain the sins of these people and you, you just, you got all the authority here. There's a great story in the Middle Ages when uh, one, of the, one of the popes uh, excommunicated the king of, of, uh, of uh, Germany and made him crawl on his hands and feet 
to come to him to be forgiven. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This isn't the idea that there are individuals. This is the idea that in this matter of groups of people, if there are people who have not confessed or people not repented, the idea is there has to be some understanding of how that works. Stuart? In order, yeah. Well, I, my, my guidance on this for this is this, that I think that Jesus is in some sense recounting or reestablishing the gospel. First is what? Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the one who will baptize the Holy Spirit. The, the sins are forgiven is Lamb of God. This is the gospel. I think... What, what, what I'm suggesting, Stuart, Stuart's asking the question. It seems a little out of place. Seems like, how, why would he talk to him like this after he just meets them? I think, again, this is the gospel, the forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. That's, that's my read on it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't claim infallibility here. Does that make any sense? We can talk about it. There is then, if you will, this, this idea that there are people that can hold, hold forgiveness away from you even if you confess or repent because they have some position of authority. I don't believe that's what Jesus is trying to set up at all, Luann. I think that that's my judgment on that's the best I can as I read it. Yeah. So let me go to two extremes here. The one extreme is I don't think at all, there's nothing that would ever indicate that Jesus is saying, I'm setting up sign of a hierarchy here so that if, you know, if Cliff says you're not forgiven because he's a pastor or he's a priest or he's a leader, he can say you're not forgiven because I get to decide that. No, but there's another side of this that I'm as well think is, could be, is this. Um, and I'll just read it to you in my notes, and this comes out of some of my pastoral experience, is retaining and forgiving is some people who act as their own judge and jury on their own sin. Like I'm set up, I can retain or forgive myself. i tell you a quick story. When I was a pastor in Houston, uh, Wayne was working with me there, and um, one day I'm sitting in my office and uh, I'm eating a sandwich or something, working, and, and, and my secretary calls me on the phone and goes, Cliff, get out of here. I, just, I thought, oh my gosh, somebody had been in a car wreck or something, you know? And so I came out of my office, and there she's standing there, and her husband has a gun on her head. And about 50 rounds in his pockets. Wayne went to lunch that day. <laughs> I'm wondering if he got a call ahead of time. And I'm looking there, and I know the guy, this is my secretary, and I know the guy went to school with him. And he looks at me, I mean, he's out of his mind, saying, now you got the preacher involved. And I'm thinking, does he know who I am? Well, what's happened, I'm finding this out later, that his wife, my secretary, has been sleeping with a guy that he's going to school with when he leaves from work 
in the evening. I'm saying, hand me the gun. <laughs> and I didn't say that. And so I'm looking at him. I said, David, give me the gun. I mean, I start yelling at him. I didn't learn this in college. <laughs> there was no class on how to disarm in a Bible college. <laughs> there, there should be. Yeah. And I said, David, give me the gun. And I mean, I'm yelling, yelling, yelling. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to scare him or keep from crying myself. I don't know. Anyway, I get the gun from him. He's got like 50 rounds. And they sit down in my office. Now, she's hysterical until I get the gun. She immediately composes herself. So I set him down in my office. I said, what is going on? And she looks me dead in the eye. And she said, she tells me. Now, again, her husband and this guy I hate to say this because this was my school down in Houston, are going to Bible college together. And the guy in the class with him knows when he leaves for work and he goes over to the house and sleeps with his wife. Um, I mean, the, the violation here is just somewhere in the stratosphere. And she starts saying this. She says, well, I mean, really like this. She goes, well, uh, I have been having an affair with, called his name, and I've been sleeping with him when David goes to work. Uh, but I've asked God to forgive me, and now David has to forgive me. Again, I don't say everything I think. <laughs> and I just said, why don't you go to the restroom and comb your hair or something where that gun's been and she left for a little while. And I, I'm sitting in front of a person who thinks they have the authority to be their own judge and jury right there in front of me. Hey, I got that authority. Sins I pertain, I retain, and the sins I forgive, I forgive. I've never forgotten this in my entire ministry. I just spent time with this guy. He was out of his ever-loving mind. You see, that's not it either. See, the one extreme is it, it, somebody can't hang you up because they're an authority at the church and say, I'm retaining your sin, you're not forgiven. On the other side, just because you and I pronounce it on ourselves doesn't necessarily mean it's a fact either, okay? Both of those extremes are things that seem to be the way people are operating and running with this thing. I think what Jesus is saying, not simply, not easily, but he's saying there's a class of people that their sins will be retained. They don't confess and they won't repent. And there's a class of people whose sins will be forgiven. They'll confess and repent. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It, it means they, they have adopted what Jesus said or what the gospel said. Confess it, deal with it, admit it, and it'll be forgiven. There is in here then a bit of an assurance, an awareness that your sins can be forgiven. And that it's the work of the church to declare this, just like in Egypt, to say, we forgive you. Just like where we understand in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the forgiveness of sin. I want to dig in here just for a minute, just for a second, just for a second for you. If you're like me, 
God is not reluctant to forgive. And I, and I noticed in me some years ago, I just kind of got bumped one day that when I would confess when I'd sinned, and I have, you know, when I would confess, I did something that the Spirit bumped me about. I would say, Lord, and I would call it what it is. If it was, you know, I, I, I misled someone or I had a thought about someone I should not have, I just called it what it is. You don't have to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, I've done terrible. You just say, you know what? When I did that, that's what it is. That's what it means to confess, to say the same thing. You don't have to go into big detail about it. But I always did this unconsciously until the Spirit nudged me one day. I would confess and say, Lord, when I misled this person or I did this or did that, please forgive me. Go back to this. Jesus said, the sins that you forgive are forgiven. You know, you know what I was doing there? I was adding something. The verse says, if we confess our sins and then ask him to forgive us, it's not what it says, is it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who adds asking besides me? Who says, well, I better ask. On the authority of John 20, I want to tell you something. I can say this on the authority on this class of people who confess your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus said. The sins that you forgive, that those who, that class of people who confess their sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. And you don't have to ask him to forgive you. Right? On the authority of this passage, your sins are forgiven. And you can go and live in the joy and the confidence that Jesus said to those of his followers, your sins are forgiven. This week, I know a lot of you won't sin. Y'all are much better than I am. And then some of you are lots worse. No, <laughs> I'm not calling names. Wayne. No, <laughs> I want you to promise me this, this week. That if you fail in sin, and you have to confess to God, that you promise me you will not ask God to forgive you. You will believe that when you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. Would you do that this week? You promise? Now the Lord may have to bump you around a little bit because if you've done this very long, you're always going to add it, aren't you? You're always going to add it. Lord, I can, oh, and for, yeah, he may have to bump you around. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're trying to understand this. Uh, we're doing the best we can. And there are times, Jesus, you know, I am just 
trying to share the best I know. And I, I have some questions like these folks do. But I pray that you'll help us this week to learn to breathe. I pray you'll help us this week to quit asking you to forgive us when we confess it. And that we would live with the breath of God animating us, guiding us, helping us. And living in the joy of forgiveness. That we could say like the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.